Holiness and prayer it is worthy of note that the praying to which such transcendent position is given and from which great results are attributable is not simply the saying of prayers but holy praying. It is the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the holy men of God. Behind such praying, giving to it energy and flame are the men and women who are wholly devoted to God, who are entirely separated from sin and fully separated unto God. These are they who always give energy, force and strength to praying. Our Lord Jesus Christ was preeminent in praying because he was preeminent in saintliness. An entire dedication to God, a full surrender, which carries with it the whole being, in a flame of holy consecration all this gives wings to faith and energy to prayer. It opens the door to the throne of grace and brings strong influence to bear on Almighty God. The lifting up of holy hands is essential to Christ, like praying. It is not, however, a holiness which only dedicates a closet to God, which sets apart merely an hour to Him, but a consecration which takes hold of the entire man, which dedicates the whole life to God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, had full liberty of approach and ready access to God in prayer. And He had this free and full access because of His unquestioning obedience to His Father. Right through his earthly life his supreme care and desire was to do the will of his father. And this fact, coupled with another the consciousness of having so ordered his life gave him confidence and assurance which enabled him to draw near to the throne of grace with unbounded confidence, born of obedience, and promising acceptance, audience, and answer. Loving obedience puts us where we can ask anything in his name, with the assurance that he will do it. Loving obedience brings us into the prayer realm and makes us beneficiaries of the wealth of Christ and of the riches of His grace through the coming of the Holy Spirit who will abide with us and be in us cheerful obedience to God qualifies us to pray effectually. This obedience which not only qualifies but foreruns prayer must be loving, constant, always doing the Father's will and cheerfully following the path of God's commands. In the instance of King Hezekiah, it was a potent plea which changed God's decree that he should die and not live. The stricken ruler called upon God to remember how he had walked before him in truth and with a perfect heart. With God, this counted. He hearkened to the petition and, as a result death found his approach to Hezekiah barred for fifteen years. Jesus learned obedience in the school of suffering and, at the same time, he learned prayer in the school of obedience. Just as it is the prayer of a righteous man which availeth much, so it is righteousness which is obedience to God. A righteous man is an obedient man, and he it is who can pray effectually, who can accomplish great things, when he betakes himself to his knees. True praying, be it remembered, is not mere sentiment, nor poetry, nor eloquent utterance. Nor does it consist of saying in honeyed cadences, Lord, Lord. Prayer is not a mere form of words, it is not just calling upon a name. Prayer is obedience. It is founded on the adamant and rock of obedience to God. Only those who obey have the right to pray. Behind the praying must be the doing, and it is the constant doing of God's will in daily life which gives prayer its potency, as our Lord plainly taught, not everyone which saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew, depart from me, ye that worketh iniquity no name, 
however precious and powerful, can protect and give efficiency to prayer which is unaccompanied by the doing of God's will. Neither can the doing, without the praying, protect from divine disapproval. If the will of God does not master the life, the praying will be nothing but sickly sentiment. If prayer does not inspire, sanctify, and direct our work, then self-will enters to ruin both work and worker. How great and manifold are the misconceptions of the true elements and functionings of prayer. There are many who earnestly desire to obtain an answer to their prayers, but who go unrewarded and unblessed. They fix their minds on some promise of God, and then endeavor by dint of dog perseverance, to summon faith sufficient to lay hold upon and claim it. This fixing of the mind on some great promise may avail in strengthening faith, but to this holding on to the promise must be added the persistent and importunate prayer that expects and waits till faith grows exceedingly. And who is there that is able and competent to do such praying save the man who readily, cheerfully, and continually obeys God? Faith, in its highest form, is the attitude as well as the act of a soul surrendered to God, in whom his word and his spirit dwells. It is true that faith must exist in some form or another in order to prompt praying, but in its strongest form and in its largest results, faith is the fruit of prayer. That faith increases the ability and the efficiency of prayer is true, but it is likewise true that prayer increases the ability and efficiency of faith. Prayer and faith work, act, and react one upon the other. Obedience to God helps faith as no other attribute possibly can. When obedience exists, implicit recognition of the validity, the paramountcy of the divine commands faith ceases to be an almost superhuman task. It requires no straining to exercise it. Obedience to God makes it easy to believe and trust God. Where the spirit of obedience fully impregnates the soul, where the will is perfectly surrendered to God, where there is a fixed, unalterable purpose to obey God, faith almost believes itself. Faith then becomes almost involuntary after obedience it is, naturally, the next step, and it is easily and readily taken. The difficulty in prayer is not with faith, but with obedience, which is faith's foundation. We must look well to our obedience, to the secret springs of action, to the loyalty of our heart to God, if we would pray well, and desire to get the most out of our praying. Obedience is the groundwork of effectual praying, this it is, which brings us nigh to God. The lack of obedience in our lives breaks down our praying. Quite often, the life is in revolt, and this places us where praying is almost impossible, except it be for pardoning mercy. Disobedient living produces mighty poor praying. Disobedience shuts the door of the inner chamber, and bars the way to the Holy of Holies. No man can pray really pray who does not obey. The will must be surrendered to God, as a primary condition of all successful praying, Everything about us gets its coloring from our inmost character. The secret will makes character and controls conduct. The will, therefore, plays an important part in all successful praying. There can be no praying in its richest implication and truest sense where the will is not holy and fully surrendered to God. This unswerving loyalty to God is an utterly indispensable condition of the best, the truest, the most effectual praying. We have simply got to trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Prayer and fervency prayer without fervor stakes nothing on the issue because it has nothing to stake. It comes with empty hands. Hands, too, which are listless, as well as empty, which have never learned the lesson of clinging to the cross. 
Fervorless prayer has no heart in it, it is an empty thing, an unfit vessel. Heart, soul, and life must find place in all real praying. Heaven must be made to feel the force of this crying unto God. Paul was a notable example of the man who possessed a fervent spirit of prayer. His petitioning was all-consuming, centered immovably upon the object of his desire, and the God who was able to meet it. Prayers must be red-hot. It is the fervent prayer that is effectual and that prevaileth. Coldness of spirit hinders praying, prayer cannot live in a wintry atmosphere. Chilly surroundings freeze out petitioning and dry up the springs of supplication. It takes fire to make prayers go. Warmth of soul creates an atmosphere favorable to prayer, because it is favorable to fervency. By bee flame prayer ascends to heaven. Yet fire is not fuss, nor heat, noise. Heat is intensity something, that glows and burns. Heaven is a mighty poor market for ice. God wants warm-hearted servants. The Holy Spirit comes as a fire to dwell in us. We are to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fervency is warmth of soul. A phlegmatic temperament is abhorrent to vital experience. If our religion does not set us on fire, it is because we have frozen hearts. God dwells in a flame, the Holy Spirit descends in fire. To be absorbed in God's will is to be so greatly in earnest about doing it that our whole being takes fire, as the qualifying condition of the man who would engage in effectual prayer. Our Lord warns us against feeble praying. Men ought always to pray, he said and not to faint. That means that we are to possess sufficient fervency to carry us through the severe and long periods of pleading prayer. Fire makes one alert and vigilant, and brings him off more than conqueror. The atmosphere here about us is too heavily charged with resisting forces for limp or languid prayers to make headway. It takes heat, and fervency and meteoric fire, to push through to the upper heavens where God dwells with his saints in light. Many of the great Bible characters were notable examples of fervency of spirit when seeking God. The psalmist declares with great earnestness, My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto my judgments at all times. What strong desires of heart are here! What earnest soul longings for the word of the living God! An even greater fervency is expressed by him in another place. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? That is the word of a man who lived in a state of grace which had been deeply and supernaturally wrought in his soul. Fervency before God counts in the hour of prayer and finds a speedy and rich reward at his hands. The psalmist gives us this statement of what God had done for the king, as his heart turned toward his Lord, thou hast given him his heart's desire and hast not withhold in the request of his lips. At another time, he thus expresses himself directly to God, in preferring his request, Lord, all my desire is before thee, and my groaning is not hid from thee. What a cheering thought! Our inward groanings, our secret desires, our heart longings, are not hidden from the eyes of him with whom we have to deal in prayer. The incentive to fervency of spirit before God, is precisely the same as it is for continued and earnest prayer. While fervency is not prayer, yet it derives from an earnest soul, and is precious in the sight of God. Fervency in prayer is the precursor of what God will do by way of answer. God stands pledged to give us the desire of our hearts in proportion to the fervency of spirit we exhibit when seeking His face in prayer.
Fervency has its seat in the heart, not in the brain, nor in the intellectual faculties of the mind. Fervency, therefore, is not an expression of the intellect. Fervency of spirit is something far transcending poetical fancy or sentimental imagery. It is something else besides mere preference, the contrasting of like with dislike. Fervency is the throb and gesture of the emotional nature. It is not in our power, perhaps, to create fervency of spirit at will, but we can pray God to implant it. It is ours, then, to nourish and cherish it, to guard it against extinction, to prevent its abatement or decline. The process of personal salvation is not only to pray, to express our desires to God, but to acquire a fervent spirit, and seek, by all proper means, to cultivate it. It is never out of place to pray God to beget within us and to keep alive the spirit of fervent prayer. Fervency has to do with God, just as prayer has to do with Him. Desire has always an objective. If we desire at all, we desire something. The degree of fervency with which we fashion our spiritual desires will always serve to determine the earnestness of our praying. In this relation, Adoniram Judson says, A travailing spirit, the throes of a great burden desire belongs to prayer. A fervency strong enough to drive away sleep, which devotes and inflames the spirit, and which retires all earthly ties, all this belongs to wrestling, prevailing prayer. The spirit, the power, the air, and food of prayer is in such a spirit. Prayer must be clothed with fervency, strength, and power. It is the force which, centered on God, determines the outlay of himself for earthly good. Men who are fervent in spirit are bent on attaining to righteousness, truth, grace, and all other sublime and powerful graces which adorn the character of the authentic, unquestioned child of God. God once declared, by the mouth of a brave prophet, to a king, who, at one time, had been true to God, but, by the incoming of success and material prosperity, had lost his faith, the following message, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein hast thou done foolishly, therefore, from henceforth thou shalt have wars. God had heard Asa's prayer in early life, but disaster came and trouble was sent, because he had given up the life of prayer and simple faith. In Romans 15.30, we have the word strive occurring in the request which Paul made for prayerful cooperation. In Colossians 4.12, we have the same word, but translated differently, Epaphras always laboring fervently for you in prayer. Paul charged the Romans to strive together with him in prayer, that is, to help him in his struggle of prayer. The word means to enter into a contest, to fight against adversaries. It means, moreover, to engage with fervent zeal, to endeavor to obtain. These recorded instances of the exercise and reward of faith give us easily to see that, in almost every instance, faith was blended with trust, until it is not too much to say that the former was swallowed up in the latter. It is hard to properly distinguish the specific activities of these two qualities, faith and trust. But there is a point, beyond all peradventure, at which faith is relieved of its burden, so to speak, where trust comes along and says, you have done your part, the rest is mine. In the incident of the barren fig tree, our Lord transfers the marvelous power of faith to his disciples. To their exclamation, how soon is the fig tree withered away? He said, If ye have faith, and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea it shall be done. And all things, whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. 
when a Christian believer attains to faith of such magnificent proportions as these, he steps into the realm of implicit trust. He stands without a tremor on the apex of his spiritual outreaching. He has attained faith's veritable top stone which is unswerving, unalterable, unalienable trust in the power of the living God.